This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media. Is this world it? Is this it? Is this world fallen? Is there a purpose to suffering? Is there meaning to life? All those things. Until you settle the big issues, you will not be able to apply these cosmic realities to the smallest of situations. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines, pastor, apologist, and Bible teacher. You're listening to Today with Jeff Fines. My name's Aaron, and welcome to today's program. We're continuing our series, For God So Loved, a play on words about the six books in the Bible that have only four chapters. Those books are Ruth, Philippians, Malachi, Colossians, 2 Timothy, and Jonah. If you want, head back to listen to all the episodes in this series. There's plenty of words of inspiration and challenges for us. You can find our podcast, Today with Jeff Vines, wherever you get your podcasts. In this episode, Pastor Jeff is looking at Philippians chapter 4. Turn with me, if you would, to Philippians chapter 4. We're in a, a series that we've called For God So Loved. There's a play on the word for. It's not F-O-R. It's F-O-U-R. Because we've noticed in six books in the Old and New Testament, there are six books that have four chapters. And in those fourth chapters, we're learning some pretty significant truths about our lives. And so we come this weekend to Philippians chapter 4. Let me read the center of that text because it's a pretty important text and it's one with which we're familiar. However, the context around Philippians 4 changes our perspective of it dramatically, but most of us don't know the context. So let's read the verse in the middle of chapter 4. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your request to God. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. A, a passage I'm sure that's been quoted hundreds and hundreds of times, even in my own life, as I, most of you know, uh, uh, went through a period of severe anxiety disorder. Very popular verse to calm us, to help us see that we're not supposed to be anxious, but we're supposed to be doing something else. But there's a larger context here. There's a greater truth here that really is transformational. To illustrate it, let me get your mind going in the right direction here. In, in 2000, January, early January 2000, actually it was more like May of 2000, Robin and I and the kids, they were small at the time, made a trip back from New Zealand to Los Angeles. We were going to fly down to Cabo and spend some time with my brother-in-law and his family. He had just purchased a timeshare. Well, this was back in the days when I was terrified of flying, and I, I'm over that now, don't know exactly why, maybe it's the miracle of God's healing, but there was a time when I just sat in an airplane, white-knuckled, gripping the edge of the seat, just trying to, to hold it together until the plane landed. And when you're on a 13-hour flight from Auckland to LA, that's a long time to have a white-knuckle grip. So we landed in LAX, and I was, I was thrilled, but then I realized that our next flight was going to be on Alaskan Airlines, which usually wouldn't be a problem. But if you know anything about that year... That was the year that in January, I think around January 29th, Alaskan Airlines had a major air disaster. Flight 261 with 88 souls on board crashed 2.7 miles north of Anacapa Island right here in California. 
Now, in those days, because I was so terrified of flying, I read everything I could about flight and I watched every uh, you know, air investigation. And I don't know why I did that, probably because I just wanted to learn more, understand more, and, and hope that, in hopes that knowledge would create a sense of, of, uh, of peace, that I would understand, hey, I'm safe, it's okay, don't worry about it. It didn't really work because the more I read, the more anxious I became. In this particular flight, on Alaskan Airlines, the pilots lost their ability to control the airplane. The plane was a, a McDonnell Douglas MD-83, very popular plane during that time. And the stabilizers malfunctioned due to wear and tear on the jack nut screws. And so this jack screw, these uh, threads on the nut that control the stabilizer, horizontal stabilizers, somehow uh, corroded, were stripped. And the more the pilots attempted to adjust the controls, the more they were stripping the threads. Therefore, they were losing more and more control of the airplane. The reason the story, one of the reasons the story was so popular is because for for a, a considerable length of time, the pilots were able to get control of the plane, but they were flying inverted. They were upside down uh, over the Pacific Ocean. And I can't even imagine, as I read the story, I can't imagine, as you see these photos, what that would have been like if I had been on the plane. I'm flying upside down. Are we going to make it? And then the last words of the pilot, as he knew he was going to try to take the airplane and uh, fly it upright, his last words were, here we go. And at that point, as he tried to adjust, the plane went into the ocean and all 88 souls on board perished. In fact, there's a memorial sundial at Port uh, Winemi here in California, and it cast a shadow over the memorial plaque that lists the names of each victim on individual bronze plates. And every year, January 31st, precisely at 422, 1622 in the evening, the shadow illuminates all the names, and it's, it's quite a memorial. People travel from all over the world to see it. Now, why would I begin a message that way? Again, as we said previously, we're in this series called For God So Loved the World. We're in these six books that teach us so much about how much God does indeed love us and how much he wants to provide for us and give us a life that we can't even ask for or imagine. In Jonah, we learned that we don't know better than God how our lives should be going. We just don't. We don't have all the information. In Ruth, we learned how it's important to get out of Moab and go back into the arms of God, get out of the land that is distant and run back into the arms of the Father. Our best life exists in the arms of God. And now we come to Philippians, this fourth chapter. The reason I start the message that way is because the modern world, our world lives with an increased amount of, or I should say an increased lack of stability. We are unstable, probably more so than we've been for generations. The financial market is volatile. Politically, we're at each other's throats. We're more divided as a nation than we've ever been, probably as a world than we've ever been. Economically, we really don't know what to expect. Young people, and I find this uh, mesmerizing, young people seem to be going through identity crisis. We're talking about 11 to 13-year-olds. I mean, what happened when identity crisis didn't hit you until midlife? You know, when you started wearing your shirt unbuttoned and drove a red Corvette, you know, and, and got a mistress and made a fool of yourself. Now, identity crisis is happening as early as 11, 12, 13 years old. How can that be? When I look around at how unstable things are and how fast things change around us, I think of my father, you know, he lived in the same town, worked the same job all of his life, and things didn't change that much. If my grandfather worked at a plant, same thing, a wood chair factory plant, 
in my hometown and his life didn't change that much. But now things change so rapidly, so fast, they've become unstable and we're bouncing off each other. So here's the deal. It's a physical fact. When you get into a highly unstable environment, if a vessel wants to navigate such an unstable environment, it has to have strong stabilizers within. This is the point of Philippians 4. An airplane can negotiate, can navigate enormous amount of turbulence if the stabilizers are working properly, and they usually do. Even in the midst of severe, and I mean severe turbulence, as the pilot from Qantas Airlines once said, don't worry, folks, this plane can take a lot more stress than you can. And he's right. When the stabilizers are functioning properly, do you know that the wings can endure? There can be a 90-degree bend in the wings of an airplane and all will still be fine. But one thing is certain, the stronger the turbulence in the external environment, the stronger the internal stabilizers have to be, right? We know that. And I'm suggesting there's never been a time more than modern Western secular societies then the individual will need more deep, strong, effective internal stabilizers. These are extraordinary times. And in modern times, you and I have to go far more. We have to have far more effective internal stabilizers than did our parents and even our grandparents, or we will not survive. We will destruct physically and emotionally. And the reason I start this way is because this is precisely what Philippians 4 is all about. Paul, the author, had more turbulence in his life than usual for his time. In fact, at the time he's writing Philippians 4, he's in jail with a death sentence hanging over his head. If you know anything about the Apostle Paul's life, he faces threats and death and abuse and imprisonment, ridicule, hunger, poverty, all kinds of turbulence, and yet he's a rock. Solid as a rock. How did that happen? Well, let's go back up now. We read verse six and seven. Let's go back up to verse one and we're gonna learn something. He says, therefore, my brothers and sisters, as he writes to the church at Philippi, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, Stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. Stand firm is the word stand fast. In other words, Paul is about to tell us this is how you can be a rock. He's assuming that wave after wave will come, turbulence after turbulence will come in life. It's a fallen world. That's the way things are. But he assumes that we are able to stand and to stand fast. Now, to allow this passage to pack the punch, let me take you on a little bit of a journey here. We'll come at this from a side door, okay? We'll, we'll, we'll put everything into the funnel and it'll come out in the end. When I was going through severe anxiety disorder, one of the first things I did is I uh, enlisted to see uh, a Christian counselor uh, with the Prater Group in Pasadena, California. And when I walked in there, I'm sure uh, it wasn't his first rodeo, and I walked in and I just wanted one thing. I wanted the answer. I wanted these anxiety attacks to go away. So when I sat down, I started immediately asking questions. Okay, what I can do, what can I do to make these things go away? I don't want stress. I don't want anxiety. I don't want these attacks. So tell me what can I do? Is it biofeedback? And I started listing some things that I Googled, which made me dangerous. And finally, he stopped me and he said, hold on a minute. And he asked me this question. He said, why are you so afraid of these attacks? And of course, I thought that was unfair. I thought, well, because they, they're terrible. You feel like you're dying. I know that the technical term is impending doom. It's horrible. I feel like I'm having a heart attack, that I'm going to die. And then he asked me this question. So, so what if you die? Aren't you a pastor? Aren't you a Christian? Didn't Paul say to die is gain? Aren't you going to go to heaven and be with Christ? 
I said, well, yeah, yeah, it's not for me. It's for my family. You know, if I leave my family behind, they're going to hurt. There's going to be a lot of pain. And he said, don't you think God can take care of your family? What, you think, you think God would call you up into his presence and then abandon your family? And he kept asking questions. And over time, I realized what he was doing. I wanted to deal with method. He wanted to deal with principle. Here is why philosophy and self-help books and biofeedback has some measure of good, but it'll never produce the kind of internal stabilization essential to standing firm because it deals with little truths on big spots. But the Bible uses big truth on little spots. No matter what the issue the Bible employs cosmic truth into even the smallest things. And that's the opposite to stress turbulent seminars. They skip the big issues and go right to the small. They fly right by principle and go straight to method. Listen, now follow me here. Especially if your life is defined as one, as you're up and down, your emotional roller coaster, anxiety, depression, you don't know why you're feeling the way you are. Look, until you settle the big issues of philosophy, you put a Band-Aid on the jack screw and it's only a matter of time before it breaks. You say, Jeff, what do you mean by the bigger issues? You've got to solve in your mind at some point, once and for all, what happens when you die? Is there a God? Is he knowable? Has he revealed himself? Is there a judgment day, a day of accountability? Are there moral absolutes by which we discipline our consciousness? Is this world it? Is this it? Is this world fallen? Is there a purpose to suffering? Is there meaning to life? All those things. Until you settle the big issues, you will not be able to apply these cosmic realities to the smallest of situations. The philosophers deal ad nauseum in these issues. The stress books never begin this way though. Philosophers do. But usually psychologists and counselors have no commitment to a particular worldview. So they go right to method, straight to method, biofeedback, thought control, stress relievers, schedule reduction, exercise and diet, straight to method. And those all have a place. But if you don't start with the big picture as the Bible does, as Paul always does, you'll put a Band-Aid on something that's d destined to break eventually. Now, I'm not saying that Paul does not include method. He does, but he begins with a theological cosmic reality. Now, let me show you how. Go back to verse one in chapter four. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, you whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to be of the same mind in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, my true companion, Help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. Now, do you know that Philippians 4, 6, and 7 is in the context of what I just read, a, a conflict between two women in the church at Philippi. And then Paul says to them, this is how you stand firm. He says, stand firm, this is how you stand firm. And he gives this example. Now, in order to understand what he's saying, you have to understand what that or this is how you stand firm refers to. And it refers back to the end of chapter three where the apostle Paul says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly body so that we will be like his glorious body. 
Now, I know when we start talking about anxiety and depression and how we can keep our heads, how we can ha have a, a stabilizing force in our lives in the midst of so much instability, we want to skip right to method without asking the big questions. Paul, look what he does. He applies cosmic stuff, spiritual realities, big picture stuff to a quarrel in the church. Why does he do that? Listen, I just got back from a trip, as I said uh, uh, last week, from uh, Georgia and Armenia, and we, we take our trips to that side of the world so that we can be with our daughter who's doing ministry in Kazakhstan. And so if I don't see her during study break, I won't see her the rest of the year. So he took photos. You know, as you get older, you take these photos because I'm walking with my daughter through the streets of Istanbul and I'm having those father-daughter moments. And then usually when I get back, I've got jet lag. And for some reason, when I have jet lag and I can't sleep, I just think about all the events that I've just covered over the last four or five weeks. And for some reason, every year, this feeling comes over me that the day will come when I won't be able to walk the streets of Istanbul with my daughter. And it's a reality. You say, well, why do you concentrate on those things? I don't mean to. Your mind just floats in that direction. The Bible doesn't tell you to think of this pie in the sky or live in denial. It tells you that no matter how good your marriage is, somebody will die. No matter how many facelifts you have, your face will eventually fall. No matter what wonderful group of friends you have around you, they change or they die or they move to another state. The Bible tells you to be honest. In this world, there's nothing that lasts. There's no strength that lasts, no relationship that lasts, no joy that lasts. And yet we know inside that we're built for something that does last. That's Paul's point. Do you see what he's doing? He's reminding us that there is a place, that there is a person whose presence, in whose presence, things don't just stay the same. They actually get better with every new day. There is a person who says to us, behold, I make all things new. We often talk about the second law of thermodynamics here. We say, you know, we are disintegrating. We are getting worse and worse. But in heaven, the apostle Paul reminds us where our citizenship resides, heaven is the antithesis of that. It's not only that things don't get worse and worse, they actually get better with every new day. Uh, my daughter, Sion, I said, look, when we go on study break, you and your mother can find places to visit, but I need to find a cafe where I can sit, drink coffee, and plan out the next year's sermon schedule. And I noticed she really took that to heart and every experience was better than the one before. She found a cafe in Yerevan, Armenia. It was nice. And then she found a cafe on the pond in Dilijan, Armenia. Then when we went to Georgia in a place called Borjami, there was a cafe on a beautiful terrace. And I started noticing, man, every event, every cafe is better than the one before. This is heaven. This is our existence. There is a place where every day is going to be better than the one before. There is a person who delights to give us an infinite number of new experiences, stabilized in the presence of his power and protection. You think about that for a moment. With each new day, new joys, new experiences, new depth of relationships and love, new and improved strength and vitality, a place that transcends the limitations of the natural world. We get stronger, fresher, brighter, Every second, forever and ever, a place where everything is eternally new. Now, Paul takes that from Philippians 3, and in that context, starts writing verse 1 of chapter 4. He applies a, a bigger-than-life cosmic truth concerning the universe to a church quarrel in the church at Philippi. Why does he do that? Please follow me. I know it's a lot here and there, but stay, stay with me. Paul cannot even deal with the smallest of problems without putting it into the context of all of redemptive history. 
He always brings the whole of eternity and the sweep of theology to bear on anything and everything. So what he's saying to Eudea and Syntyche is this. He doesn't start with steps to conflict resolution. Christianity never starts there. It's a temporary mandate. Instead, he says, sisters, remember where you're from. You are citizens of heaven. Remember where you're going. Remember the glory. Remember your citizenship. Realize what Christ has done for you and what he's secured for you. And since all that is true, where is this pettiness coming from? How can there be divisiveness in the presence of those ideas? And he goes on and he says, lift up your eyes and see the big picture. You may not agree with everything or on everything. You don't have to. You may have strong differences of opinion. That's fine. But rejoice in the fact on those things on which you do agree. Lift up your thoughts. Think of the higher things. Look at verse eight. Set your mind on the higher things, the things of excellence. Let that govern your attitudes, your emotions, the way you approach everyday life. And his point is that Paul does with everything, everything. He addresses every situation in life, no matter what it is, and tells us, you can be a rock because... That's the rock on which you're founded. Christ is your rock. And because he secured your eternity, the resurrection of the dead, and because you are going to a place where everything is new and renewed, then that can make you a rock too. Now, how does that work? Is that pie in the sky? Look, I've mentioned this before. Sometimes, sometimes the, the language of Paul seems to be indicating that you and I are supposed to look at our life as if the week before we go on vacation, and again, this is, I'll make it short, but you know, the week before you go on vacation, you can take almost anything because you're, you're interpreting the things in light of what's gonna happen next week. So you can take a lot more gossip and slander. You can take difficulty and pressure at work because you know, hey, on Monday, I am out of here and I'm gonna have the time of my life. Paul says, apply that to your life here on the earth and it'll give you an incredible amount of peace. Know that this is a fallen world, but know that you've already won the battle. Know that one day you're in a place where things get better and better and better. And if you apply that to your conflicts, to your job pressures, to your relational issues, again, Christianity's not saying live in denial, but, and neither is it pie in the sky. He's simply saying, apply the ultimate truth, the big, the big picture, to the little issues in your life. Know that no matter what you're experiencing here, your citizenship is in heaven. You know, Martin Luther King Jr. grew weary at some point in his life of the beatings and the imprisonments. And he came to a point in his life, if you've read uh, letters in a Birmingham, or from a Birmingham jail or any of, any of the, even the biographies that have been written, he came to a time in his life where he was weary of all the imprisonments and the beating and the prodding and the, just the conflict. And this is what he wrote near the end of his life. He said this, and I quote, like anybody, I would like to live a long time. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain and I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. And then he says, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. What's he saying? He says, there's no stress anymore, no pressure. He's at peace no matter what happens. Why? What is it that gives him staying power? 
And he's continuing to fight the good fight, to fight the battle. He's not giving up. He's not living in apathy. But he says, I have this sense of endurance because I'm able to stay the course because what? Mine eyes have seen the coming of the glory of the Lord. You've been listening to Today with Jeff Fines. Thanks for joining us. Next time, we'll bring you the rest of this message from Pastor Jeff. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation by prayer and petition. And here's the key word, with thanksgiving. That is the key word in Philippians 4, 6 through 7. Paul's not only talking about praying when you're anxious, he's talking about a particular kind of prayer. You can listen to more messages like this. Just search for Today with Jeff Fines wherever you listen to podcasts. Today. 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 Today with Jeff Fines. This is a production by One and All Media. For more, head to oneandall.media.